You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. A dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. Ah! Who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives? Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. Hello, I'm Annie Rose Malamet, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Jello. The trailer you heard in the beginning there was from the first ever actual Jello film that we're going to discuss on the podcast, Mario Bava's 1964 Blood and Black Lace. I first saw this movie in high school after watching Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments, kind of a theme on this podcast. Um, I guess that show really stuck with me. I chose the name of this podcast because I'm a big fan of alliteration. (laughs) I love girls. I love movies with guts. And I do love giallo films. A lot of people have asked me what exactly is a giallo or the plural gialli. Giallo is Italian for yellow. It is a 20th century Italian genre of literature and film. Um, Especially outside of Italy, giallo refers specifically to a particular Italian thriller horror genre that has mystery or detective elements um, and often contains like elements of slasher, uh, crime fiction, erotic thriller, exploitation, and sometimes supernatural horror elements, but that's less frequent um, and sometimes kind of just brings the movie into being full horror and less giallo, which has to have some kind of like mystery element to it. Also important to the giallo film is there's an element of eroticism in these films. So mystery, crime, and eroticism and particularly eroticized violence, are the hallmarks of a giallo film. The genre developed in the mid to late 60s, um, and it peaked in popularity around the 70s and then declined over the next few decades. A lot of people consider giallo films to be uh, predecessors to modern American slasher films, such as Halloween being an early example. The word giallo is Italian for yellow. The term comes from a series of cheap paperback mystery novels with yellow covers that were popular in post-fascist Italy. Blood and Black Lace is directed by Mario Bava, um, and it is considered to be the first true giallo film. Bava had directed other mystery films before this, but this is the first 
of its kind to really focus on the killings and the brutality and the gore and the eroticism of the killings. Most mystery films before this focused more on the procedurals and the actual uh, discovering of the killer and character development. So this is the first time and it's considered the, the first true giallo film. Mario Bava was an Italian cinematographer, director, and special effects artist and screenwriter. Um, he's frequently referred to as the master of Italian horror and the master of the macabre. His films were often low budget, and they're known for their distinctive um, mise-en-scene, the setting up of a scene. And he uses a lot of the same recurring themes and imagery concerning conflict between illusion and reality and the destructive capacity of human nature. A lot of his films failed to achieve major commercial success upon release, but many of them have become cult classics with their content and production values uh, compared a lot to actually Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho is considered to be a precursor to Blood and Black Lace. So around this time is when Bava started to really churn out a lot of movies. That's another thing I've noticed with Jalo films is uh, there's a few master directors of them like Mario Bava and Dario Argento. And in the 60s and 70s and even until the 80s, they were producing films every year, if not multiple times a year. Uh, the films were really low budget, so they allowed for this. That's something that you really don't see that often today. And it's notable because there was a huge boom of these films at this time. Michael McKenzie's video essay, Gender and Giallo, examines the male and female dynamics that inform these thrillers and are usually dismissed uh, for misogyny. Mackenzie connects Jalo to political and social revolutions of the 1960s and 70s, and he posits that these films reveal how the Jalo explored a man's increasing confusion in the age of a more modern and assertive woman which is evidenced by the fact that the killers are usually male, masked madmen, sex maniacs, men who can't control themselves, and the women are usually more passive. When the women are killers, and we're definitely going to talk about some of those films on this podcast, there is great emphasis on the psychotic state of the woman killer and how disturbed she is. And it's usually because she's transgressed some kind of traditional feminine role. So the American title for this film is Blood and Black Lace. The Italian title, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it in Italian, but translated, it's Six Women for the Murderer. This film didn't do well. It was kind of a flop, but is now considered a classic of the giallo genre. The general plot here is... There's a fashion house full of beautiful models that are being stalked and brutally murdered by a masked killer in an attempt to obtain a scandal-revealing diary that one of the models kept. Apparently, Bava was bored by the mechanical nature of the whodunit and decided to de-emphasize the more accepted cliches of the genre. The stalk and kill sequences themselves were given more importance than all other concerns, right? So like I said... It, up at the top of the podcast, um, 
there had never really been this much attention paid to the actual death and stalking of the characters before. The movie was filmed in Rome during a six-week period between November 1963 and January 1964. Blood and Black Lace was actually written in English. A lot of Jalo films were written in Italian and translated in an English dubbing, but this one was actually written in English. And all of the film's cast members spoke their lines in English, some of them phonetically, and then it was dubbed over later. This is another thing. This is, I think, sometimes why people have a hard time getting into Jalo films is because of the dubbing. Um, it just feels really like cheesy and antiquated. This is just how it was done. I would actually like to look more into that. I'm going to assume that this was preferable because the American public was just not ready to receive a film where they had to read subtitles. So the film's opening sequence is extremely memorable. It opens with this tableau of all of the cast of players in the film, and they're all standing in these static positions with these insane red mannequins and either looking at the camera or looking at the mannequin, and they're just completely still, and the camera just focuses on each of the characters in the film as the opening title music plays, which is really great, and we'll, I'll play it at the end here. But this has really struck me immediately. This is very unique. You don't see a tableau like this very often. And this opening sequence kind of speaks to how there's no main protagonist in this film. It is definitely a an ensemble picture. At various points, you think different people are going to be the main character, but then they either get killed off or you find out that they're not the main character. So it's very much an ensemble piece. So after the tableau sequence, the film opens with this red fashion house sign being battered in the wind and the rain. So immediately we get red as a motif here. This movie is extremely beautiful and lush and vivid with red and purple and green colors. Before this, Mario Bava's movie right before this was in black and white, so he's just kind of like all out getting into colors immediately with this film, and red is a huge theme here. Or rather, red is a huge motif here. And the fashion sign kind of being battered in the wind speaks to the destruction of this fashion house and what's actually going to happen in this film. We see a man and a woman and they're standing outside and the man is pleading with the woman to get him something. And she's saying, you know, oh, just hold off. Like, I'll be able to get it for you soon. And um immediately addiction is already a theme here. Um, we don't know what the guy needs, but we're going to assume that it's some kind of substance because he's saying he's getting sick without it, etc. Then we see a woman in red, of course, walking alone in the mist. And it definitely kind of brings up Little Red Riding Hood imagery. She's in a forest. It's very misty. She's in that red cloak. And as we know, Little Red Riding Hood is a parable for basically to scare women into not walking alone through the woods or a wolf is going to get you. Wolf being a man, a rapist, a predator. A masked killer comes upon her. Um, this masked killer is wearing 
a very disturbing mask. I mean, it's basically just a very thick stocking over his face. So it kind of looks like the old uh, Invisible Man movie. So the killer strangles her to death. Strangulation is always used in real life too uh, as is a common way to murder women in film i think a lot of women in real life probably do die of strangulation by uh, a male partner usually um i mean i'm sure gun violence is like the leading cause of death of anyone in the u.s but i'm sure that a lot of women are also strangled by partners and i think that this is interesting to me because it's a very gendered death. Um, you, somebody who is a lot stronger than the victim has to be able to hold their neck long enough to drain the life out of them. And it's also a very intimate way to kill someone. You have to be really close to them. You have to look into their eyes and watch the life drain out of their eyes. So I was immediately struck by this kind of gendered killing. It's also semi-erotic because it is so intimate and up close to someone. And of course, it makes me think of how people enjoy breath play and choking. And maybe I'm reading too far into it here. But uh, I think this will become important later when we find out who the killer is. So now we're back at the fashion house and everyone is concerned because Isabella, who is the woman in the red cloak, is missing. Madame Christiana, who is the woman who runs the fashion house, uh, finds Isabella's body broken in an armoire. And this is kind of symbolic too, right? Because she's a fashion model. Her life is fashion and clothing, and she's found among these beautiful clothes in the fashion house. This is when I started to feel like there were a lot of themes relating to pride and vanity being explored here. Isabella made her living, made her life from her beauty and her body, and now is sort of having this sick kind of reckoning by her body being stuffed in this armoire. Police Inspector Sylvester is assigned to investigate the murder, and he interviews um, Max Moreland, who's the manager who co-manages the fashion house with his lover, Madame Christiana. The police also go to interview Isabella's supposed lover, uh, this guy Frank, who owns an antique store, and he you know, says that he wasn't her boyfriend and that he doesn't believe in monogamy. The police show him this baggie of coke that they found. They show him a baggie of cocaine that they found on Isabella. So we kind of immediately find out here that Frank, there's a lot of like seedy stuff going on. Frank is a cokehead. And that is what he was arguing with, with the blonde woman in the beginning of the film. So again, more themes here of sin, vice, avarice, everything is corrupted. You see this beautiful fashion house, these beautiful girls, beautiful exterior, even the antiques, this beautiful front. Everything is very opulent. There's filigree on the walls. There are these great loft stone apartments, but 
there is so much hypocrisy and avarice and sin going on underneath all of this. Back at the fashion house, the women are preparing to, I guess, have some kind of fashion show. I don't know. I'm like really not a fashion person. I don't know a lot about that world, but it looks like they're getting ready for some kind of fashion show. And this is when they find Isabella's diary. Actually, this model, Nicole, finds the diary and everyone wants it. Um, So the camera kind of zooms in on everybody and you think, okay, anybody could be the killer here because they all want this diary and they all want to read it. So what are they trying to hide? What are they trying to not let the police find out? Nicole agrees to take the diary to the police. She calls Frank, Isabella's supposed lover, and now maybe we think also her lover, and says that she's going to bring it to him so that they can read it and take out anything that they don't want the police to see. I also wanted to point out that there are a ton of dolly shots in this movie, and supposedly Mario Bava really didn't have the budget for a dolly, so the camera was wheeled around on a red wagon (laughs) to get these shots. And they're really effective because they really underscore what an what an ensemble piece this film is and how there's really no main character because the dolly shots the way that they're set up we see everybody's inner life everybody's conversations whereas usually when there's a protagonist you just see things from their point of view so in this film the dolly shots are allowing us to see everyone's point of view Nicole goes to Frank's antique store, which is kind of like this furniture labyrinth, and she's trying to find him. And there's a lot of tension being built up here. A lot of really beautiful furniture, actually. She's apprehended by the killer, and he immediately rips her shirt off of her, and we see her in her bra. So the killings are becoming more sexual. They're very... The killings are super eroticized. And it also kind of, it makes me think of uh, Helmut Newton photographs where there are these beautiful women lying in these suggestive positions, but they're dead. And a lot, much scholarship has been written about this. There's, it's generally considered this kind of imagery to be really typical of the male gaze when you have this dead woman you can look over her whole body she's helpless you don't have to get any kind of consent right but i also think there's interesting motifs here going on with the con the comparison of the mannequins to the women's bodies it's definitely not this unintentional oh I'm just a misogynist pig making a movie and I want to see hot dead girls there's definitely a comparison being drawn here between the mannequins and the women's bodies that I think is that is obviously very intentional and kind of how what is the difference between staring at these pliant fashion models who are completely still with no personality and looking at an image uh, on in, on film of a beautiful dead woman. So Nicole is murdered really violently and actually the murders get more violent as the film goes on. She's there's this kind of like rusty claw that the killer has that he shoves into her face and kills her. Mercifully, we don't actually see that going into her face. It's just implied. 
This is when we find out that the killer is driven by this diary because this masked figure rifles through her purse trying to find the diary and realizes that she doesn't have it. So someone has taken it from Nicole. So someone else needs the diary. Another model, Peggy, is arriving home. Her boyfriend is desperately uh, waiting for her outside her apartment. She she pulls out Isabella's diary from her purse, so she has the diary. She starts to read it, and there's a passage where Isabella writes that she caught Peggy trying to take $1,000 from her purse, and Peggy cried to her and said she's pregnant and needs it for an abortion, and Isabella ended up just giving her the money, and then she says, but that means I'm going to have to ask him for $2,000. So we're like, okay, who is this guy? This must be the killer. So again, more themes here of these demons that are lurking just beneath the surface. So everything is connected. All of these people are connected in their shady dealings. Peggy burns the pages. The killer breaks into her apartment and attacks her. And it's really brutal, the scene where he attacks her. I was actually really surprised. Like, I've seen this movie before twice. um, And I didn't remember it because the last time I saw it was in college. So like, maybe eight to 10 years ago. And I did not remember how violent this was. And I guess I sort of naively thought that because it was 1964, it wasn't going to be that violent. But it's brutal. The killer really overpowers her and slaps her around. And the frustrating thing about it is the women in this film don't really try to fight back at all. So she's really just being brutalized by this killer. And it's an extended sequence. And I'm not sure that any film had done this before. The killer, not wanting to speak and reveal his identity, writes down on a piece of paper, where is the diary? And Peggy is insisting that she burned it. The killer doesn't believe her. He drags her out of the apartment and up the stairs. Peggy is being held by the killer. She's tied up. The killer then tortures tortures her by burning her hand and then burning her face and disfiguring her, which is obviously super symbolic because she's a model. She makes a living off of her beauty. So there's a real rage here that the killer is driven by and the desire to mutilate women. And actually, there's a line that one of the men says later in the film when they're all in a lineup kind of accusing each other of being the murderer he says look in his eyes he hates women so this film is very self-aware of the misogyny in the crimes that are being committed these guys they do their lineup um the police decide to hold all of them overnight because they think that one of these guys has to be the killer and I believe it's like men who work at the fashion house and it's also the boyfriends of some of the models and there's a really interesting scene where one of the men I'm sorry I don't remember all the men's names I'm very bad at remembering men's faces and names I have like man blindness a little bit um I know some of the key players are like I know Frank and I know Max um But I do forget some of the other guys' names. And one of them, actually, the one who's accused of hating women, goes into an epileptic fit and gets carried away, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like, I don't know if that was just there to 
be kind of more of a titillating image in the film, or maybe it's we're supposed to think of him as more innocent because he has this illness. I wasn't sure. We cut back to the models at the fashion house and they're all scared shitless because uh, the men are gone and they have nobody there to protect them. There's this really uh, interesting looking woman with these incredible eyebrows and her name in the film is uh, Dao Li. And I am going to assume that this white actress was supposed to be read as an Asian woman. So there is some yellow face going on in this film. In the American release, I believe, she's actually, her name is Tilda. So in the Italian version, she goes by Dao Li. And this was unfortunately a super common thing that films were doing in the 60s and before. And I will include some literature on the history of Yellowface in the newsletter that I released to my Patreon subscribers. So Dao Li is not afraid and she goes home alone. Another woman, Greta, begs her to go home with her and Dao Li is like, get the fuck away from me. I just want to go home by myself. So Greta also leaves alone, even though she's very scared. And she says she lives all the way out in the country. We see Madame Christiana alone with these creepy mannequins. It's kind of an amazing scene. Really beautiful dolly shots, really beautiful color of her being petrified of these crazy purple and red mannequins. And of course, red is a very common color that's used to signify lust and rage, which are both inexplicably intertwined in this film. Greta goes back to her home and she finds the dead body of Peggy in her trunk and she drags the body upstairs to her apartment for some reason. This didn't make sense to me. I thought, okay, maybe she's doing this because she is afraid that she's going to be the one who's accused of killing her because her body was in her trunk. That's the only explanation I can think of. The killer breaks into the apartment and uh, suffocates her. This is really significant, okay? The way that the killer kills her in this scene is much less violent than the other killings. So this means that there's no way that any of the five men who are being held at the police station could be the killer because Greta was killed the night that they were being held. Also want to take an aside to talk about Greta's amazing gothic apartment. It's like stone, high vaulted ceilings. It's really gorgeous and stunning. And the gothic is a huge theme in Mario Bava's work. And he always has the most gorgeous gothic set pieces. So shortly after this, we find out that the killers, killers plural, are actually Max and Madame Christiana. So the killing is coming from inside the fashion house. It's not an outside force. It's actually inside. And presumably Max killed Isabella because she was blackmailing him. And I'm assuming she was blackmailing him because she knew that he was sleeping with Peggy, who is the one who needed the abortion. So 
I'm going to say he killed her because she was blackmailing him. And then he had to kill Nicole because he thought Nicole had the diary and was going to read it and find out. But then it turns out Nicole didn't have the diary. So then he had to go kill Peggy to get the diary. And, you know, it just kind of spiraled from there. Then once he was arrested, Madame Christiana has to kill a girl so that he can have an alibi. He can be absolved. He can't be the killer. But then he says, Max says that Chris has to kill another girl. So I I was unclear why. Uh, I think he just wanted to set her up. So she goes and kills Tao Li. And now when she murders Tao Li, the murder is a little bit more violent. She drowns her and slits her wrists in the bathtub, which is actually a very beautiful shot of Dowley dead in the bathtub. There's a real aestheticization here of the death of these women. And it's disturbing because the shots are really beautiful. And of course, red, right? More red of the blood of Dowley filling the bathtub. Crawling out of Dowley's apartment, Chris falls to what we presume to be her death. We think she's dead. We think Max has really set her up quite nicely here, but she arrives back from the dead with a big bruise on her head and, uh, you know, comes to seek revenge on Max. And uh, this says she landed in the awning of a shop and that's why she didn't die. He attempts to persuade her to not kill him. She's holding a she's holding a gun to him and Max uh, attempts to persuade her to not shoot him. And they embrace and uh, we hear a shot and we're not sure who's been shot. We're not sure if it's Max or Chris, but then Max sinks to the floor and we find out that Christiana has actually shot him. But Christiana is mortally wounded. She collapses next to Max's corpse and the movie ends there. Some notes here about the cast. Madam Christiana, who I think is the most compelling and interesting character, was played by Eva Bartok, who was a very popular Hungarian-British actress and was actually married to Frank Sinatra at one point. Cameron Mitchell plays Max. Um, he was another popular actor that began his career on Broadway and then was in numerous exploitation films in the 70s and 80s. The music is incredible. It's by the Italian film composer Carlo Rusticelli. His prolific output included about 250 film compositions. Jesus. It really is a beautiful movie. Super aesthetic, super visual. I want to quote a couple of lines here from the writer Chuck Bowen, who wrote a review of the Blu-ray edition of this film for Slant magazine. The killings in Blood and Black Lace are still disturbing, yet have the vitality of pop art. As in most jolly, the killings suggest the price that's to be paid for fetishism, for regarding the shapely, strategically unclothed female forms, and all the other eye and ear tickling stimulation that governs the aesthetic, as well as serving as the ultimate heightening of this stimulation. He also says Bava's mixing of emotionally motivated color and object-centric tactility set the visceral template for the giallo. Thematically, Blood and Black Lace offers the giallo an irresolvable obsession with female violation that's simultaneously cruel and heartfelt. 
Here, the murders are understood to reflect a debasement that suggests a furthering of the debasement of modeling, a suggestion that's literalized by the killer's placement of the bodies in hideous poses and by a purposefully fake substitution of a dummy for an actress in a drowning scene. This thematic is complicated further by the identity of the killer, who reflects the fashion industry's self-loathing and self-consumption, driven by a mixture of profound self-interest and neuroses that would be enormously influential to the subgenre at large. In Ijiallo, a woman's worst enemy is often a woman, a woman driven to shirk the chains of status quo that shackle her. And I will leave you to ruminate over Chuck Bowen's thoughts on this film there. I'm also excited to announce that I recently launched a Patreon page for this podcast. Um, I do everything myself on this podcast. I record, I host, I write, and I edit, and I promote the podcast all by myself. I'm not working for any kind of big media company. It's a one-woman production. So I started this Patreon to help me with the cost of the podcast, like, for example, the what it takes to host the podcast on an RSS feed service, and I'm also hoping to get some new microphones and maybe even a new computer in my future. So this podcast is a labor of love, but it does take a lot of time out of my life and my week. There are four tiers to my Patreon membership. The first is for $1 a month, you can be a killer nun. Uh, you're showing your support and you get a shout out on the podcast. For $5 a month, you can be a succubus and you will get not only a shout out, but also a monthly newsletter, which will include recommended readings. You could also subscribe for $10 a month as a woman on the warpath. And with this subscription, you actually get bonus episodes where I will have, I will release brief mini episodes talking about recent releases. And my plans for that, for example, are I'm going to do one on The Perfection and the movie Ma that just came out from Blumhouse star starring Octavia Spencer. The next level up is $20 a month. You can be a vampire lover. And with that subscription, you can actually request films for me to talk about on the podcast. And I would even be open to you being on the podcast if you wanted to. So check it out. It's patreon.com slash girlsgutsjalo. That's it for this episode. I'm going to play you out here with some music from the great Carlo Rusticelli from Blood and Black Lace. You can find me on Instagram at girlsgutsandjalo. You can also follow my personal account at fatgoth. F-A-T-G-A-W-T-H. Or you can send me an email at girlsgutsandjalo at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Annie Rose Malamut, and you're listening to Girls Guts and Jalo. Mm-hmm.